Hello, and welcome to this special edition of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. There is no escaping the awful scenes in Ukraine. And there's no escaping the huge impact across the world, not least in the UK, where Russia's invasion is rewriting the government's energy policy, its economic ties with Russia, and its priorities for defence and foreign policy. This is going to be the first in a series of IFG podcasts, taking a deep dive into Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what it means for other governments and their response, what it means for global security, international relations, energy, and a lot more. Because this war in Ukraine is changing immense amount of what governments do, and it's affecting all of us. Today, we're going to look at the impact of sanctions on Russia and on the West, what this means for Vladimir Putin, what it says about the way that the UK in particular embraced Russian money. And to discuss it all, I'm delighted to be joined by three people with a deep understanding of how Russia works and indeed how Russian money moves around the world. Oliver Bullough is the best-selling author of a number of books on Russia, most recently Butler to the World, billed as the book The Oligarchs Don't Want You to Read, and it's about how Britain became the servant of tycoons, tax dodgers, kleptocrats, and criminals. Hi, Oliver. Hello. Very pleased to be here. Thank you for coming. Sam Green has become a must-follow on Twitter for anyone gripped by the crisis, so that's pretty much all of us. He's a professor at London's King's College, runs its Russia Institute, and is the co-author of Putin versus the People. Hi, Sam. Hello. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us. I'm also delighted to be joined by Polina Ivanova, who covers Russia and Ukraine for the Financial Times. Hi, how are you? Hi, hello. You've had to leave Moscow? You were in Kiev? Yes, I was in Kiev when the war broke out. I was reporting for about two weeks before then in various parts of the country on the kind of build-up to war and reported on the outbreak and then subsequently a little bit on the refugee journeys, leaving the country, and then now I'm in London. Great. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Let's start with sanctions. Harder hitting than perhaps Vladimir Putin expected, harder perhaps than some Western governments had expected. Polina, how are these being felt in the shops, on the street, by ordinary people in Russia? I think one of the things that has come as the biggest shock and the most kind of isolatory shock for people, especially anybody who earns money from abroad or has any kind of business ties abroad, has been the pullout of Visa and MasterCard and other financial services sort of payment systems. When I call back to Moscow at the moment, that's the thing that people talk about the most is that an inability to transfer money outside of the country. There's currently a uh, rush on securing cards that use the Chinese union pay system to the point that some banks in Russia are tweeting about how they uh, have run out of plastic for the cards and, you know, they can't actually... It's actually gone out of the plastic. That's that's yes. amazing. And, that, and the chips. But what does it mean for people? Is it is it about transferring money out of the country, or is it about being able to buy things in the country? Well, it's both. I mean, if you're, for example, I spoke to um, one woman. She's a psychologist. She works online. She receives some of her income domestically from clients. She also receives a large share of her profits from clients who are located abroad, and she just cannot receive that income anymore. And she doesn't know how to do it. She to the point at which she started looking into cryptocurrencies and, you know, sort of staring <laughs> at her computer screen, trying to work out what to do with this because it's completely new for her. And a lot of people are facing this. I mean, Western Union isn't working. PayPal isn't working. Um, We're really looking at the severing of globalization and all these strands that have been put in over decades to allow people to do exactly these things. Yes, that coupled with the sort of tit-for-tat and like-for-like bans on on travel uh, on air, on on the airspace has meant that people, especially um, in sort of central Russia and urban middle-class Russians are feeling it very hard. 
And how can we really judge public opinion in Moscow? There's a bit, if you're watching television news, there's always this awkward bit where they try and give some account of what people think in Russia. And apart from the very dramatic things like protest on Russian state television, it's clearly very, very hard to capture what people are thinking. Yes, it is. And to the point which even independent pollsters are struggling to do this, when so much is regulated, for example, the use of the word war to describe the war and other, you know, there's very strict new laws being introduced on on how um, people can discuss, you know, these military censorship laws, basically, some of which carry up to a 15 year sentence. So even for pollsters to ask questions like that by phone, they are not necessarily getting a sort of free response, right? Um, So it's very difficult to judge sentiment in that way. I mean, I spend my time either either trying to talk to people or scrolling endlessly through Vkontakte pages and the Klasinki, all these different kind of social media sites that are used that are very widespread in Russia, trying to kind of get a sense. But even there, the picture is blurred through the use of bots and, and, and that sort of thing. It's hard. Sam, what did you make of President Putin's latest declarations, set of assertions, speech, whatever you want to call it, on, on Wednesday? You attack Russians with their homes in Miami and so on. Tirade might be the, 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 the word that I would use. I'll take that one. It's, um, you know, uh, he, he had this, this this rally today. He's, he's clearly, you know, been, been trying to marshal public opinion. It's interesting. There's been a bit of an evolution, right? So when they started with, with this war that they won't call a war, they, they really tried hard to, to prevent, you know, Russians from thinking about it too much. It wasn't too much on television. Uh, what was there was, you know, it was kind of the end of the broadcast. And it, it tended to, you know, over time ramp up and be something that they, they clearly felt that they needed to, uh, uh, to get ahead of, right? But the way they've managed this war and the way they've talked about it really speaks to a certain amount of nervousness uh, about Russian public opinion, about whether Russian public opinion was prepared for the war. Clearly, it was not. A lot of people really even struggled to believe that it was happening even, even once it was happening. And then, of course, you know, now to, to control the, the messages and the interpretations that people are, um, are, are getting, right? But this has really been a message of anger, right? So if you go back to the speeches that Putin made uh, at the time that he, uh, you know, recognized, uh, you know, the alleged independence of the separatist regions in, in eastern Ukraine um, and, and then declared war, uh, and then his most recent like, tirade this, this week, right? These are uh, speeches and addresses that are meant to make Russians angry. It's a very different kind of response, you know, than what we saw, for example, after the annexation of Crimea back in 2014, when he was trying to give Russians something to be to be happy about. And that that broadly worked, right? It supported his his approval ratings for, for four years, despite, you know, uh, you know, the stagnation and in some cases, recession in the uh, in the economy. Uh, I think, uh, you know, th- there, even though most people, right, uh, do seem to, to, to broadly buy the, the interpretation, or at least to want to be seen as buying the interpretation that, that, uh, the state is putting out on, on state television and through, through Putin's speeches, we're still not seeing a lot of, of, of public enthusiasm. Uh, for a war that, that, again, most people in Russia seem to, to fairly you know, uh, poorly or weakly understand. And Oliver, what did you make of his attack on Russians with their homes in Miami and fondness for foie gras and so on? It was interesting. There was a sort of almost a, a kind of bookend aspect to it. One of the first speeches of his that made a real impression on me when I was living in Russia back in 2000 was after the Kursk submarine sank. And, and his sort of rather faltering response or his disastrous response to this disaster, and I think it was 118 sailors who died, was exposed by the, the media channels of the oligarchs. He did a similar attack on 
people who lived, you know, kept their money abroad, lived in the south of France and so on. And, and you know, I, I suppose there's a sort of weird irony to it now in that back in 2000, you know, he was a newcomer. He was attacking the oligarchs who dominated the country before he came. But he's been running the country for 22 years now. Those people, you know, with with villas in Miami and, and assets in, in, in London or the south of France or whatever, those are his friends. You know, they got rich because of him. The the billionaires who are still billionaires or who became billionaires under his ro- under his rule are people who he essentially allowed to become rich or who he personally made rich. So I'm a little bit baffled by where he's going with this, really. I, I don't know whether he doesn't realize how widespread the perception is in Russian society that his friends have become extremely wealthy thanks to him, or or, or whether he's just trying to ride it out. It, it, it seems very odd to me. And and yeah, I mean, I, I, I consistently get him wrong, I admit, but this is one where I'm, I'm more than usually baffled. Thanks for putting it like that, because that's exactly what I was getting at. Uh, it's a lonely time to be an oligarch, if you think of being um, shunned by the world, and now by, now, now by President Putin, who helped them to do so much to, to get their current wealth. In fact, doesn't one of his daughters have a property in Biarritz? It's been variously described in the past few days as it was besieged by people as, as belonging to her or her former husband. Yeah, I think also possibly in the Netherlands. Um, I, you know, It's a little bit hard to get a sense of, of Putin's daughters and indeed Putin's more extended family is a little bit tricky. I mean, you know, he's always had this approach towards oligarchs. You know, after 2014, he spoke about de-offshoreization, which is as ugly a word in Russian as it is in English, uh, you know, trying to bring this money home. But it's always been a sort of slightly pointed, you know, for my for my friends, everything and for my enemies, the law type approach to the oligarchs, which is that as long as they're his friends, he doesn't really see them as oligarchs and tends to let them get away with whatever they like. I mean, certainly, you know, quite a number of his very close allies have substantial assets in London. And, and you know, and yet, you know, supposedly London is one of the, the heart of the coalition that he's railing against here. Sam, what is the point of the kind of sanctions we've been d- discussing? Polina was discussing the, the impact on, on ordinary Russians. I'm thinking particularly of going after these oligarchs. Mikhail Friedman, the Russian businessman who, who one of those sanctioned by the West, has, has said, if the EU thinks that I can go up to Putin and tell him to end this war and he will listen to me, things are in a bad state. It means those taking these decisions don't understand anything about Russia. And that's dangerous. Hasn't he got a point? Well, he may do to the extent that uh, you know his ability to, to to create regime change in in Russia and those you know for, well, let's be honest that these these sanctions at this point they're not about deterrence right they're not about trying to change what the Russian government does they're trying to about trying to change who the Russian government is. I, I agree with that. Except you might possibly say they're about deterrence of China from Taiwan or something. But anyway, possibly right. But we're beyond trying to deter you know Russia from doing anything. Um, and 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 so this is about punishment and it's about it's about changing you know the. the the power structure in uh, in Russia, you know, either by fomenting some some combination uh, of of uh, you know public uh, unrest and uh, and elite unrest, right? And, and this really does you know have an impact on uh, on the oligarchs. Come back to that in a in a second. But the, the Friedman is is correct, right? That uh, it's very hard to find anybody in his position, certainly, or or the position of most people in the Russian elite, right? Who who can physically Challenge Putin, right? Putin has has been girding himself against these kinds of challenges for for a very long time. It doesn't mean that he's impervious, but it does mean that it, it's going to be very difficult to to do. Now, if if it is ever going to happen, right, it's going to happen at a moment like this because it it is a moment like this, and under these kinds of sanctions, and this is where I would disagree with Friedman. 
it is a moment like this, and it is these kinds of sanctions that will focus the minds, not just of individual oligarchs about whether they need to challenge Putin, but in, in fact, people up and down, uh, up and down the elite, with the exception of maybe a very small number of people in the in the security services, who of course Putin does rely on, right? But you know, it, this is a radical shift in the the structure of the relationship between Putin and, and his elite, right? Up until really the present moment, Putin's role has been to uh, to govern on behalf of the elite, right? To allow all of these people that Oliver was talking about to become fabulously wealthy and remain entirely unaccountable and to manage the relationship that these people had and that the state has with uh, with the public through, through Putin's ability to, to have some degree of of legitimacy, something that, of course, none of the oligarchs do, right? So that changes now. If if Putin is is able to, to to push Russia into this position in which it is entirely cut off from the West, in which the oligarchs can no longer use their their assets and their ability to, to multiply and and use those assets in the West, if they can no longer use those assets as a source of autonomy, right? Then they essentially become salarymen in the service of of Putin to a much greater extent than they ever have been before, right? That's a tremendous loss loss of, of power from, from their perspective. And again, it, it applies really to absolutely everybody in the system. And so there, there is a moment, and I think this is what you know part of what sanctions are designed to manufacture, there is a moment in which everybody could come together and decide that's not a system in which they are interested. That, of course, only happens if, if they all come together as a group. And we may not be at that point yet. In fact, we could be quite a long way from it. It might take a more kind of a really comprehensive defeat uh, to do that. But what you've described is surely what uh, many of the countries imposing sanctions are, are wishing for, which is, without spelling it out, regime change. Helena, I, I wondered what you thought, and you've been writing about this a lot for the Financial Times, what you thought Putin might do in response to these sanctions, precisely to head off this kind of unrest and discontent that might be the consequence? Well, I think he's going to be support doing whatever he can to support the economy, first of all, to limit the impact on uh, the population in general. I think that's going to be a, a key focus. And um, he has a lot of people working for him. And I think it's interesting, this point about elites, there is also a section of the elites who are sort of more technocratic and more liberal-minded, Western-minded, who are, um, you know, people like the central bank chief or the heads of some of the state banks who are now sort of in this in this camp as well of, of being forced to choose whether they, you know, the, the middle ground is gone. They've been forced to choose whether they sort of defect completely or or stay and keep their economy running. And so that's a very difficult boat. But Putin will be relying greatly on people like that to keep things afloat. And they've already announced some measures, sort of raising pensions, raising the minimum wage, increasing state payouts, increasing the uh, sort of wage of, of public sector workers who represent a uh, sort of not only Putin's core base, but, you know, a huge amount of the, a huge percentage of, popula- of the population. But other things that we could see, uh, I think one of the most dramatic things that we could see happening as time goes on is um, moves against Western businesses in, in Russia. You mean by that, for example, taking their property, in BP's case, the stake they have in a Russian company and so on? So there's been this, obviously, there's been this massive corporate exodus. Some of the companies have said that they're just suspending operations and will continue to pay workers, but a lot of those suspensions will will gradually potentially turn into kind of just full pullouts from the country, and they may see their assets nationalized and new companies come in, uh, Russia, Russian businesses taking over. So that will be quite an extreme measure, uh, you know, it'll be un- practically unprecedented, but they may do take steps like this in order to, for, for example, prevent massive job losses. And I think that's one of the real risks for, for looking ahead is just is, is unemployment. 
Oliver, what do you think about this point that Pauline has just been expanding on about whether Russia can protect itself from the effect of these sanctions and whether it might just drive Russia closer to China? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think that the role of China is obviously a really interesting one. I mean, as we speak, there's just been a conversation between Biden and President Xi, and it's not entirely clear exactly what the meaning of the Chinese communique is, but it certainly doesn't look like full-throated support for Putin. There seems to be certainly, a, if not a degree of sort of ambiguity from China, then a bit of studied neutrality. Will Chinese companies be willing to risk secondary sanctions in order to support Russian industry? I mean, that's a, a key question. But a lot of the Russian industry, you know, the Russian car industry, for example, you know, is as reliant on global supply chains as Western car manufacturers are. And without those imports, it's hard to see how they can function, whoever owns them, whether, you know, Russia ends up sort of nationalizing these companies or not. Um, You know, Russia has, you know, its role in the world economy for a long time has been primarily as a source of raw materials, particularly fossil fuels. And it's really interesting to see if the EU is going to follow through on its promises to reduce dependence on Russian imports and also to increase production of renewable energy, because you know, that would be in, in the long term quite a, a threat to the, the Russian business model. I mean, the Russian economy is already not very strong. I mean, what it's, it's sort of size-wise, somewhere between sort of Italy and Spain, it's not a huge player globally. And without those import earnings from fossil fuels, it would it would be even weaker. So, you know, it, the longer this crisis goes on and the longer, you know, the more likely it becomes for Western countries to follow through on these promises to really move away from using Russian exports of, of oil and gas, you know, the more Russia becomes sort of strategically weaker, and as it were, even more reliant on China than it has been before. So I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I can't really see a way out for Russia at this stage, just because it isn't autonomous in, in what it produces, perhaps more autonomous in food than it was before 2014, because of the counter sanctions imposed then. But in terms of all the various high tech imports required to run a modern economy, I'm, I, I don't see much scope for sort of Russian Russian growth there. Sam, just finally on this question of sanctions, what do you think Russia's prospects are? I mean, whether it can protect itself, work with China and so on, whether we're really going to do anything about oil and gas? Well, whether we're really, really doing anything about oil and gas is, is significantly above my you know, pay grade. I don't think we're seeing a lot of, of, of appetite right. for that at the moment. But the you know, as Polina was saying, there is a strong technocratically, particularly in the financial sector and in the government's financial management. They have historically been been very well managed fiscally and, and, and in terms of, of monetary policy. That remains in place. That team remains in place, at least for the time being. And and through some capital controls and other things, they've been able to stabilize the ruble. They've been able to, uh, as a result, probably mitigate, at least in the short run, the uh, impact on, on prices. Although what I'm hearing from people in, in, in Russia is that some things, including staples, right, have, have uh, begun to go up quite significantly. Putin has been very clear that, that he does not intend to you know, start printing large amounts of money. And so uh, a degree of austerity will, will eventually begin to, uh, to bite and there will be more pressure um, on, the, on the budget and on the, on the ruble as a result. I think that you know, the bigger question is, again, if you listen to them and if you can look at you know, one of the things that Putin said in his speech the other day, right, um, was that roughly half of the of, of the world, right, d- is not participating in Western sanctions, right? Of course, that means China, India, um, you know, and a, a number of, of developing economies, right? Um, and and Russia may feel that that they can you know sort of reorient their trade um, in in that direction. 
you know, which may be possible in, in the long run. There'll be a lot of transaction costs uh, associated with that, but also a lot of, of, of lost opportunity costs. I mean, Russia had, even despite the sanctions, come over the last 10 years to feel uh, like a much more uh, European and Europeanized place, at least from a, a quality of life uh, standpoint for, uh, for the Russian middle class. Um, that uh, will look very different if Russia's you know, key trading partners going forward are you know, China, uh, India, and Brazil. Well, thank you for that. Let's use that as a pivot to turn away from money in Russia to Russian money in London. It's been here for a while, lots of it. Oliver, your new book, as we were saying, is called Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of All These People. In short, how did this happen? Do you regard it as deliberate policy or just taking an eye off the ball? I think it was a happy accident from a from a butlering perspective. I don't think anyone intended this to happen, but as soon as it started happening, people were quite happy to encourage it. I was sent recently a, a quote from a, an unnamed Labour minister from the um, 2005 who said, just get with it. All money is good money, particularly if it helps build our schools and hospitals. I think that's been the approach for British policymakers for a long time. From the other side, uh, Russia is has long been unique among major economies with the quantity of national wealth, which is outside the country. According to the research from Gabriel Zutman from the University of Berkeley, California, fully half of Russian national wealth is offshore outside the country. And considering the extreme wealth inequality in Russia, that essentially means that half of the Russian elite's wealth is outside the country. And the reason for that is fairly clear, partly because there's far more fun stuff to spend money on outside Russia than there is inside Russia, and partly because Russian oligarchs don't really trust the Russian legal system any more than anyone else does. That is an astonishing figure, though, half. I, it's it's genuine, genuinely amazing. I mean, you know, the it's 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 a it's a sum equivalent, roughly equivalent to sort of between fifty and sixty percent of the size of you know Russian annual economic output. Whereas the equivalent figure in Britain would be something like ten or twelve percent. It's a it's a huge amount of money. And in terms of Russian money in 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 Britain, can you say how much we're talking about? It, it's impossible to say because it's become so so embedded in the structure of the Russian economy of of you know what is Russian owned is essentially impossible to identify for anyone who isn't themselves the owner of that wealth. It's really it's been here for a long time. But I mean, if you look at you know the top end of the housing market, certain sort of for the fine art market, obviously the football market, uh, things like that have been have been you know severely distorted by the arrival of this vast amount of wealth from Russia. And Britain has I mean not just been a haven for wealth; it's also actively defended wealth. So. You know, legal proceedings between oligarchs have taken place here, much to the profit of lawyers. Uh, libel proceedings to stop journalists writing about oligarchs again have been here, and much to the profit of lawyers and, and the de-profit of media organisations, and and so on. So it's been a it's been a very profitable business stream for the London professional, for British professional class in London in particular, for ever since the end of communism. Mm, and, and that's before mentioning the divorces. Lena, what has this done to Britain's reputation? It, it just open country, have anyone here uh, re- receive their money? Or has, do you think it's undermined Britain's reputation for uh, upholding law and a set of values? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, um, from a, from the perspective of the Russian elite, I mean, many measures that, that Britain has introduced to try and regulate this have sort of been either quite successfully sidestepped or um, loopholes have been found. So there is a degree to which it um, is perceived as flexible, especially the court system. But I think the popularity of the way of the London way of life, for example, has continued despite, I think, diplomatic relations between Moscow and London being potentially one of their worst 
points ever, regardless that uh, that the appeal has continued. The public school appeal, the kind of the appeal of the lifestyle has 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 remained strong for for the museums, the, ho- the houses, the yeah, and there's been a huge amount of investment in it. How, how would you say what that lifestyle means to Russians who want to spend part of their life outside Russia? What was the great magnet? I think it's a combination of all sorts of things. I think the the point raised about property rights is an important one. I think people just, there's a huge amount of risk involved in doing business in Russia. And there is a, a strong degree of privacy in, in the British system that um, has <laughs> favoured keeping Russian money here. But yeah, it's, a, it's been a strong cultural appeal that's built up and um, over, over time. No, well, thanks for that. And as, as people do take trouble to say, it doesn't mean that every Russian in in London at the moment is an oligarch or close to Putin. Sam, I'd love it if you could pick up this point about Britain's reputation and how you think other countries look at Britain now in in, in this particular aspect. Well, I mean, I think Britain gets you know a lot of bad press uh, for this um, uh, in, um, in 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 great measure and deservedly so, right? You know, through through the efforts of people like Oliver and and, and Polina, right? Um, and so I think Britain does get does get singled out. I'm not sure it's entirely fairly, uh, in part because there's lots of other places where this is happening. It happens in the US. It happens elsewhere in Europe. But, you know, Britain is in some ways a fantastic store of value, right? It's a wonderful place if, if, if you're looking for, you know, large assets that are liquid and that are protected, right? There's not a whole lot of other you know places where you can do those sorts of transactions. So to, to a certain extent, it is, it is going to come here. I think, you know, th- there is a bigger uh, reckoning behind uh, all of this, though, which is that, you know, we, we had this assumption uh, at the uh, sort of very end of, of communism as, as countries like Russia and others were, uh, you know, beginning to build market economies. And, and I think there was this very easy assumption on the on the part of, of Western politicians and, uh, and economists in particular that, you know, if you, if you created capitalism, created a capitalist class, right, that that class would accumulate wealth and begin to develop a demand for the rule of law in order to, uh, to, to protect that wealth, right? Um, and the first thing certainly happened, right, these, these markets became, you know, fabulous places in which to to accumulate money and, and to earn money much more rapidly uh, than you could uh, anywhere else, in large part because there, there wasn't the rule of law in places like Russia. The assumption, however, that, that the oligarchs and others would want the rule of law turned out also to be true, but it also turned out to be that they could get that rule of law outside of Russia. Right? And so essentially what we did was we allowed them to, to have this kind of institutional arbitrage in which they could have the best of both worlds. Right? They could earn fabulous amounts of money in, in, in Russia, greater returns than would ever be available to them in, in any Western market, uh, and then uh, protect those assets um, in, in the West. And so, but by allowing them to do that, we have essentially um, uh, enabled the Russian government, the Russian regime to remain unaccountable uh, and to continue undermining uh, the rule of law, right? So the place where I think, you know, the, the, the reputation of, of the UK and, and, and other Western governments has, has taken the most damage is frankly in Russia itself. Right when 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 I hear from uh, you know Russian friends colleagues who are you know out risking their their lives and and their security on the streets protesting against this war or who are now fleeing to places like Armenia Georgia Turkey anywhere they can get out of the country right um, you know they're happy for the support but they do wish that Britain and other Western governments had understood what they were saying about the damage that this kind of institutional arbitrage was doing to. Russian politics uh, a very long time ago. Thank you for that. You put it, you put it very well, having it walking both sides of the line, if, if you like, 
all of it, the UK government passing the economic crime legislation, does that go far enough? No, I mean, I think if it's a start, then it's a good start in that it exists. But it's a the, the Economic Crime Act, which was I received royal assent at about one in the morning earlier this week. I rather hope that the Queen herself wasn't dragged from her bed to do that. But hopefully that's some kind of automated process because it was about one in the morning. But the yeah, that was a it's a pretty shoddy piece of legislation. I mean, it, it does some little tweaks to unexplained wealth orders, which maybe toughen them up a bit. It does some stuff to allow sanctions to be brought in. You know, that's good. But really, the 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 the, the core of it is this transparency of offshore owned property. You know, oligarchs like to use offshore companies to hold property in the UK, so we can't find out who they are. And that's been a you know a problem for a long time. The government first promised to do something about this in 2016. But this piece of legislation, it fu- it's full of so many loopholes that it's, uh, I mean, it, it's hard to believe that they couldn't have done better considering how long they've had to prepare it. You know, it shares all of the same loopholes that Companies House uses. And those loopholes are why vehicles from Companies House have featured in every single major money laundering scandal out of the Soviet Union in the last 20 years. You can do a whole podcast just on Companies House and the failings there. Yeah, I mean, well, so this this is replicates that. So yes, if there is a sequel to this Economic Crime Act, a new Economic Crime Bill, which is better than the original, then great, then that this will be a good start. But if if this effort runs out of road and everyone gets interested in something else in a couple of months, you know, then then that's bad. And we just need to remember that it was only in January that a government minister resigned in the House of Lords because of the government's failure to pass the Economic Crime Bill. This is not something. Boris Johnson had a huge passion for. He's been dragged kicking and screaming into this because of the fiasco of the government's response and, and the slowness of its of its sanctions policy. You know, so it's it no, it's it's pretty feeble to be honest. And and um and I yeah, I'm, I'm I would sound disappointed, but that would suggest I was appointed to begin with. We'll have to see if they come back with anything else on this. I mean, it was uh, it was going to be delayed, and then uh, and then it was uh, revived under uh, after all the protests and part of this brought forward. We'll have to see if they go further. Paulina, just a final thought from you, perhaps to bring it together. We're looking at this extraordinary situation where the UK and the West are stripping away ties with Russia that have been built up over over decades, not just trade and finance and energy and money, but science and culture and so on. What's this going to do to Russia? That's a very good and very important question. I think it will have a very powerful impact on uh, the political makeup of of, of society in Russia. Um, in particular, I think uh, you've seen tens of thousands, if not you know hundreds of thousands. There's no measure of it uh, available at the moment of uh, Russians leaving. That's been the first big shift, and then these are mainly people who have potentially protested in the past or have posted something on social media that they're now afraid of, uh, you know, people, opposition-minded people. So that's already created a kind of political vacuum in Russia. And then the trench that has been dug very rapidly between Russia and the West, the total isolation, coupled with Russia's own kind of measures against social media sites and and that sort of thing that have have built up a wall already around uh, the country and the flow of information, will push people, very likely will actually push people uh, to sort of rally together, create a kind of sense of being attacked, you know, victimhood of, um, I think that's quite, that's quite a likely response, uh, the further this progresses, um, especially when sort of very hard-won uh, 
you know, programs of cultural exchange or travel or this sort of thing that had over 30 years brought, you know, transformed a large part of Russian society. Those have all disappeared and, and travel is now, you know, becoming incredibly, incredibly difficult. Yeah, I think it, it, it may have, it may push people into sort of look inwards uh, into Russia and, 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 and feel attacked. Well, thank you. That's absolutely fascinating and obviously something we want in all its nuances to look at in the future. But thank you for that, that final musing look into the future, which is so very hard to see at the moment. Well, thank you all. That's it for this special episode of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Sam Green, Polina Ivanova and Oliver Bullo. Thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We've got a very timely discussion with the Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral Sir Tony Radican, coming up. And we'll be returning to the war in Ukraine, what it means for the world in the coming weeks. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. Do leave us a review too. I always ask. We always appreciate it. And don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all our latest work. Whatever happens next in Ukraine, the world and Russia's place in it has changed. Thank you.